So intimacy with our experience, cultivating intimacy with our moment-to-moment experience. Gil has used that word, those phrase, those phrases a lot, and Andrea also. This is what we're cultivating. We've talked about sensing into our experience, the sensing aspect of mindfulness, the clear recognition that supports mindfulness. And as we deepen in our practice and gain some a little momentum, settling in, um, we can start to also see the process where the mindfulness starts to maintain, um, there starts to be some stringing together of the moments of mindfulness. We have these qualities of the mind that direct us towards an object of mindfulness. And we've been focusing on the body and the breath. And then we have this other quality of the mind that has a Pali name, Bichara, which is the maintaining, maintaining with that object that we're being mindful of, that we're bringing our attention to and holding in our mindful awareness. And there's a beautiful image that I, well, I like this image of this process of directing and sustaining the mindful awareness. It comes from the Visuddhi Maga of the directing the attention towards the object. Let's say it's the breath in any given moment. Let's say it's some feeling of pressure in the breath. Um, that's like a bee going towards the flower. And then the sustaining when we're able to really connect with that and be intimate with our experience is like when the bee buzzes around the flower, just hovering, just not really forcing in there, but just hovering and noticing with careful attention what that, what that experience is like, you know, teasing out, what does that really feel like in the body, in the mind? So when we can start to feel a delight in the, that mindfulness, because we're letting go, of the typical distractedness of the mind, the typical habits to go out into an imagined past or an imagined future, and the mind can brighten up as we start to really maintain that attention. And um, one of the things that we start to notice as our, the mindfulness can get a little bit stronger is more and more detail about our experience and the ways that the mind and the body interact and the mind can condition the body and the body can condition the mind. And one of the things that we can start to notice is this second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of Vedana. That's the Pali word. It's often translated into either feeling or feeling tone. But what it refers to is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant valence, the, the, that aspect of experience that arises with every object at the body, in, that arises in the body, or that arises uh, through all of the sense doors, or including the mind. So every sound, every touch sensation in the body, every taste, every smell, every thought, every image that pops into the mind, every emotion, all of it the Buddha discovered when he sat down 
and used his own mind-body process experience as a way of investigating what causes suffering and what causes cessation of suffering is that every single object that arises at these sense doors comes with pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And he saw this as universal, and then this is highlighted as a, a foundation of mindfulness in and of itself, which that fact kind of points to the importance and the significance of this particular foundation and how important the Buddha found it to bring our attention to this, investigate it, see, what, see how it um, operates in our experience. So I'm going to talk a little bit further about um, some reasons this particular foundation uh, is so significant and highlighted on its own. But I'm going to first just explain a little bit more about how we can understand Vedana itself. For one thing, each experience of Vedana is conditioned, which means that the experience the sense that the mind gives of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, and which sometimes that's said as neutral, so I might use the term neutral, sometimes that will come in, that um, is conditioned by our past, by what's happened in the past to us in terms of intentions, actions, experiences, things we've been exposed to. It's not inherent in the object, so it's not inherent in broccoli that it's either pleasant or unpleasant. (laughs) Um, but we may have a strong opinion about that. And, um, and that points to another, another aspect of Vedana that we, that again, highlights the conditioned nature of it is that it can change so that even it within our own experience, we can encounter, um, a similar, the same object or, um, what's arising and can be, Um, can happen even very quickly in an instant, but we might interpret the Vedana differently at one time than at another. So as a child, we might have thought broccoli or Brussels sprouts was really awful, and now it could actually become almost our favorite vegetable, right? So, um, and, you know, this is highly, we can have a lot of cultural conditioning around many of our experiences and our reactions of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, um, So acquired tastes, right? Some people are really drawn to certain kinds of foods because that's what they were accustomed to, and it's pleasant. And then other people will have a different reaction. So this is, oops, this is conditioned. Conditioned and shifting and changing. And we can see this, start to see this even more perhaps subtly, for example, like when you sit down on your cushion to meditate, maybe the feeling of the cushion feels kind of neutral or pleasant, but that changes over time. (laughs) It's probably the same amount of pressure, but there may be even uh, in, in the practice, you might even notice where it starts to shift that suddenly this pressure, the there's, there's unpleasantness in that. Um, And again, it's just, we can notice that it's not inherent in the object, but it's, it's, it's arising and it's, it's, we're having conditioned reactions to that also. So it's actually, 
rather poignant and a way that a really um, fruitful vehicle to explore Vedana in terms of seeing the three characteristics of Anicca, Nata, and Dukkha, which I'll describe a little further for those who haven't had a lot of teaching on that. Um, <clears throat> but because of this conditioned nature, because we can see that uh, through our practice, we can notice that our, these, these uh, pleasanter and pleasanter, neither, you know, reactions that we have, that we ascribe to these objects, come from the past. They are, we didn't control them. We didn't decide, like, you know, I'm going to like broccoli or not. I'm going to react in that way. Um, this particular sensation that's arising in the body can come from nowhere. And, oh, there it is. It's unpleasant. This is coming and it's conditioned from past events. And so that's part of the, what we call the not-self or a nata aspect of our experience. And the Vedana the highlights that in the sense that we can see over time um, the conditioned nature of it. And it's rather poignant because what we're, we're living in as human beings, the kind of the uh, nuts and bolts of our experience, is a shifting and changing experience of pleasant, not pleasant, or, or neither, that we don't actually control. And so as human beings, we are actually in a state where we're having habituated reactions to these shifting and ephemeral experiences that we don't control. So it, this a touching into Vedana can be quite a poignant experience. And then our habitual reactions are to tend to try to um, keep the pleasant when we can't because it's shifting away, right? Um, that actually delicious taste of broccoli touches the tongue and then as we chew it, it starts to dissipate and then we'll try perhaps to seek some more delicious food or maybe it's the biscotti instead, that's a better example. Um, and the pushing away of unpleasant experience, there's a lot of contraction in that and maybe you've ex been exploring that in your practice, but we can't control that it's there and we try to push it away and then we have this resistance to our present moment experience that's sort of the opposite of that delight of being able to maintain our mindfulness that I was talking about in the beginning. So we have that rub with experience because we're habituated to just push away the unpleasant, not really living with the truth of uh, the intuitively knowing that it's going to pass and um, cultivating a different relationship to that experience. So this second foundation of Vedana is really um, getting to the core of, of, of what we practice with and how the Dharma can, can lead us towards a more liberating relationship with life's experience. So one of the ways that my teacher used to describe one of the ways that we fall into our habits of really not seeing the truth of the impermanence of particularly pleasant experience and trying to chase after it in order to um, 
in order to, uh, you know, generate happiness out of ephemeral experience. Um, he used to talk about it. And this, you know, this is basically what I'm talking about is the um, delusion of, of greed, of, of trying to just maintain a pleasant experience that we can't. He used to always, uh, or pretty frequently, at least probably once every two months, read this quote from Hafez. And um, my teacher was Howie Cohn, and he had some pretty good standard quotes. And um, he used to read this trying to highlight for us how we might get caught up in a un, a not-so-fruitful relationship to pleasant experience. He read this, Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> so that's a great image of how we can get really stuck when it comes to pleasant experience, right? And what does that feel like? And, uh, we're dragged around like that. Perhaps in our daily life, we've decided there's some particular possession that's really going to make it for us, like, right? We got to have that car or maybe just even that relationship that's actually not attainable or won't really last. So this is really pointing us um, towards a way that we can, we can be free of, of habitual tendencies that get us stuck. So Vedana is associated with, you know, not just the bodily, the physical sensations, but also everything that's arising at the mind door, mind states, emotions, thoughts. And this aspect of our experience is also really important for us to explore because it interacts with another aspect of the mind, um, another, another thing that is arising in the mind in every moment, which is perception that the Buddha noticed. So perception. And within the Buddhist context, this means, refers to the way in which the mind is constantly recognizing what's coming up at any sense door in the mind or in the body. And oftentimes it will actually name that thing. So say I hear a truck outside the door and the mind hears and then it goes truck. Um, and so we're constantly doing this. The, the mind is just automatically, it's, it's perceiving things say through the eye door, there's gill and the mind says gill, right? Um, it's, um, it's, it's part of the way we obviously function as human beings. And each perception comes along with a Vedana and that's conditioned, as I said, and often, and I mentioned the cultural conditioning that we have. Um, so Vedana can really interact with our conditioning and we can, um, and it can change our perception, impact our perception. So we'll have associations with things and memories and then and then suddenly we'll um, ascribe pleasant, unpleasant, or neither to that. And sometimes this can just involve things that are rather mundane or, or not so consequential. So for example, um, one time I was practicing at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and I kept hearing this kind of chip chip outside my window, outside my door, and I felt like, I thought it was an annoying noise, like, like a machine or something, and I just I would hear it and just be like, what is that annoying noise? 
And then I realized one day when I was walking out in the woods that it was a chipmunk. And my perception of that sound completely changed every time I heard it then. It was really pleasant and sweet and cute. Well, there's that chipmunk, you know? So we, um, we're conditioned to have these pleasant or unpleasant labels that go along with the um, labels that we ascribe to things through our, the quality of perception in our mind. But this can also, um, so this can have a lot of consequence for the way in which we, our minds can be biased actually, or have preconceived notions. So we can think about just, I'm gonna drop in a few political terms here. This is maybe a trigger warning. Um, don't want to take you out of retreat, but I do want to illustrate the importance of the way perception and Vedana can interact. Um, and partly I really want to emphasize why this is so important for us to explore in our practice, uh, the way that we have automatic pleasant, unpleasant, or neither responses to certain, certain things that arise in the mind. So I'm just going to say Republican. What comes to mind? Is there an image? Is it pleasant, unpleasant? I'll say Democrat. What comes to mind? It's probably, for me, there's images and a whole array of reactions. What about socialist or environmentalist or Buddhist? Now, we can see that um, there can also be really uh, uh, a lot of consequences in society for um, divisions that have been created over time. Like we can have a lot of associations when racial groups are referred to um, and sometimes even in veiled terms. So as we, what we're practicing with is, is really the, the core of what, what can lead to divisions, strife, um, false sense of separation between people. Um, so it's an extremely important aspect of practice for that reason. So again, this, um, this is all, con this process is a process of conditioning, pointing to the not self or anatta aspect of it. It's not arising because we chose it, chose to. We're not, neither the, neither the uh, Vedana nor the categorization that goes along with it is something that in that moment we're in control of. We can influence it though with our practice by bringing mindfulness to it and shining a light on the process. You know, we can be really honest in our practice and what arises when we encounter people from different groups. Or what, what are the ways in which we might have been conditioned to value some people over others? You know, what about age or body size? These things, we can explore this in practice. So how to practice with Vedana? Again, the, the Satipatthana Sutta is so, so beautiful in its simplicity and clarity in certain ways. So it's simple, but I'm just going to read you this particular, the beginning sort of paragraph of the um, practice with Vedana. So the Buddha said, and how practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating feelings as feelings. Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a practitioner understands 
I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, they understand, I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling, they understand, I feel neither an unpleasant nor pleasant feeling. And the Buddha goes on to talk about worldly and unworldly Vedana, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later because it brings up a kind of a set of different, different things to discuss. But one of the important things to know about if we're sensing into our practice, and let's say we can just do it in a simple moment of the breath. Um, is the breath in this moment pleasant, unpleasant, or does it feel like it's kind of neither? Um, just knowing that and understanding that. One of the important things to know is that ple- this Vedana is different and distinct from the actual mind states of liking or disliking. Once we're into the stage of liking or disliking, we've gone into craving, we've gone into either greed or aversion to that experience. So the practice is to kind of start to tease out the difference. Uh, Can we see the difference? Can we note just pleasant in the breath without and see, is there liking of it in the mind or not? That can be part of the exploration or the same with unpleasant. And it's perfectly fine to just be noticing that like, okay, there's, um, there's liking and disliking. So it's not just Vedana that I'm noticing. And you can touch into, is there kind of suffering that goes along with that reaction to the pleasant or unpleasant that's arising here? So this points to what part of the reason why this particular foundation is singled out and perhaps um, so important. After all, I mean, it's craving within the framework of of the Four Noble Truths, craving, that liking or disliking, um, because the greed or aversion is, is is a manifestation of that craving, is the cause of suffering. So in another way that this is kind of described in the teachings is in the um, links of dependent origination. And I really can't go into those 12 links at all, but I do want to kind of reference this briefly. Um, These links of dependent origination describe the way in which we stay in a cycle of suffering. We stay in a cycle of um, a constant experience of having contact at our sense doors then Vedana arising, then we tend to have craving in response to that Vedana, which is the liking, the disliking, or the actually, when it comes to the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the spacing out and not paying attention. And I'll get to that more later. So there's contact, Vedana, craving, and then clinging can arise from the craving. Once we want something, we get it, we want to hold on to it, and becoming. So there, there's this becoming that then results in which we're really tra- we're really then placed in a place of ignorance because what we've done is we've taken this fleeting experience, this fleeting phenomena of pleasant or unpleasant that's probably already gone. We've created a solid uh, self out of it. We've solidified ephemeral experience and um, you know, we're probably in a place there of separation where we maybe want to hold on to that pleasant and we could get into harming behavior 
where we want to push it away. We may be in this aversive state or we're in a state of suffering for ourselves that may even impact others. So when we touch into being mindful of this really basic experience that we have of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, we can actually start to um, see how we can break that chain right there before it even gets to the craving, right? That's why we can just, perhaps if we can sustain some mindfulness of Vedana for a while, we can see a real peace or ease, a real ability to be with the shifting experience that we don't typically experience in life. So there's also this really um, kind of fascinating part, I think, to me it's fascinating because I'm a Buddha Dharma geek, but um, fascinating aspect of um, one of the suttas on dependent origination. You don't need to know that part, I suppose, but um, it, this is kind of pointing to the other side of, I read the little excerpt from Hafez that my teacher reads about how we can get stuck uh, in um, harming patterns, like being stuck behind a farting camel when we're chasing after pleasant experience, when we're um, trying to hold on to pleasant experience too, we can get, this is the Buddha described really clearly how that it begins with the Vedana um, and in a chain of increasing states of kind of grave craving that go to what's called guarding of possessions, that then leads to abuse, lying, and other unwholesome states. So I find this really interesting, especially perhaps to contemplate how Vedana plays out in the larger social context. Um, so the Buddha went through a whole chain of increasing states of greed that lead to that. So I just want to kind of want to read some of that. It's a chain of conditioning. So Vedana conditions craving, which conditions seeking which conditions ultimately acquisition, desire, and then it conditions appropriation, avarice, which is the stronger greed, which conditions guarding of possessions. And guarding of possessions, because of the guarding of possessions, the Buddha says, there arise the taking up of stick and sword, quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, abuse, lying, and other evil states. So the Buddha points to this as the foundation of how the way in which human beings lead themselves into these very much harming patterns of abuse, it comes from Vedna. And again, we're out of touch with the fact that that's shifting all the time, unreliable, okay? So anicca, impermanent. Anatta, we're not even in control of it. It's conditioned. Dukkha, it's unreliable. We can't rely on the shifting and changing pleasant experience to give, it, give us lasting happiness. It's our attempt to guard our possessions that leads us into unfortunate, harmful behaviors. So I want to talk now about this little puzzle of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which maybe sometimes doesn't get as much treatment as Hockler, I don't know. Um... Sometimes people ask, how can I practice with this? Because they know they know about Vedana. How can I practice with neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience? And the really fascinating thing um, 
that the Buddha says, and I want to give credit particularly to in one of the major sets of suttas, the um, Majjhima Nikaya, the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina, who is teaching her former husband, who she's attained beyond his attainment. She was one of the Arahant Bhikkhunis at the time of the Buddha. Bhikkhuni Dhammadina is talking t with her disciple, former husband. And he's asking her about neither, um, he's asking her about Vedana. And, and basically how we get caught in suffering through Vedana. And she says to her husband, with pleasant feeling, persistent is pleasant and change is unpleasant. With unpleasant feeling, persistence is unpleasant and change is pleasant. With neutral feeling, with neither pleasant nor unpleasant, knowing is pleasant and not knowing is unpleasant. So with the, um, with the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the way that we get caught in a cycle of suffering is by spacing out on it, not paying attention to it, not being aware that it's present, not being mindful of it. Because we're not aware, we miss what the Buddha said. We miss its arising. We miss its disappearance. We miss the gratification that we might see in it, the disadvantage of it, and the potential escape. So being touched by a neutral feeling, if one does not understand as it is the arising, the disappearance, the gratification, the disadvantage and the escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying tendency to ignorance underlies one. And in this context, we can think of ignorance as taking things which are impermanent to be permanent, taking things which are not self to be self, taking things which are unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. So here we don't, we, we, we tend to space out on our neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience. Think about aspects of the breath. And the fact is we're bringing just more awareness to our experience. So that's that not paying attention to the, to this neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It, it basically, we miss the impermanence because we so don't, don't notice so much of our experience and the way it's flickering, the way it's like arising and passing, arising and passing. It's one of the things that kind of tricks us. So when we bring our attention to it, um, we can then, start to just have a, a broader awareness of what is the experience to be a human being, including this, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now it's a little tricky sometimes, and, and so we can check it out in things like the breath and the body. We've talked about, you know, Gil led us through that beautiful meditation, um, part of which was noticing the sensations in the hands. Now in the sensations in the hands in any given moment, is there an area where it feels like, well, it's actually kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant here. And uh, it's really interesting to explore because sometimes there might be just a little subtle, is there a little subtle pleasantness to an aliveness in a feeling, uh, in, a, in a sensation in the body? Might, it's, it's um, you know, just interesting to explore. So that will just, can just maybe bring a, a broader awareness, especially when it, something, when, when noticing something like the breath, not to just discount the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now the other thing about neither pleasant nor unpleasant is that the mind tends to react by just going boring. 
and that suffering. You know, how much of, uh, how much actual suffering simply arises out of that boredom that we have in response to neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Like sitting at the computer, how much of like a little moment of boredom or with the phone, there's this urge to escape and get to the next little pleasant, right? I mean, possibly um, the device industry has tapped into our absolute inability to tolerate or like tendency to be totally unable to tolerate neither pleasant nor unpleasant and boredom. So, so this is a um, way in which that's just something that we can um, explore also in the practice. And uh, yeah. And again, of real consequence when we think about things like that, and the way our mind can really get we can really get dragged around. I feel like that's really like, kind of like when I'm stuck on my phone and I'm just going and going, that feels like being dragged behind a farting camel to me. <laughs> it really kind of does. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I've done this 10 minutes later or whatever. So um, there's other amazing aspects to this particular foundation of Vedana and what the Buddha said. And he... Um, so the sutta says, I read the first part of how to practice with Vedana, which was simply referring to basically understanding when there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neither there. And the Buddha went on to say, um, as of a practitioner, when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly unpleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant unpleasant feeling, he understands, I feel an unworldly unpleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel an unworldly, neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling. So um, let's unpack this. And this is a part of what I think is so beautiful about this is, is that um, this is really right when we're practicing, we're going to see the difference here between these kind of unworldly and unworldly experiences. So what does unworldly and worldly refer to? Um, and literally, Gil was telling me and Andrea yesterday that worldly and unworldly is trans worldly refers to of the flesh and unworldly refers to not of the flesh. Um, it's understood to refer to being connected with the five sense desire, this, the five cords of sensual desire. So being connected to so worldly is when um, the pleasant feeling is connected with just the sense desires, just wanting more sense pleasure, right? It's just like, I feel this worldly pleasant feeling because I just want more and, and, and I've got it. So, you know, another biscotti or something like that, or finally getting the thing, the thing you, or, you know, like, like ordering the thing on your iPhone, your iPhone that you really thought you need in order to be happy. Um, a worldly pleasant feeling. The unworldly is, is it, our pleasant 
feelings or unpleasant feelings that are not associated with just seeking after more sense desires. Right, so um, there can be a lot of pleasantness and there can be a lot of um, um, joy and other kinds of things that are, that are associated with actually non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So we know when we explore in our practice, when does this come up? When do, when, what do, what's the difference when I just feel like, oh, worldly pleasant, like it tastes better, it smells better, it, it feels better, as opposed to pleasant that's, like, that's associated with um, lack of greed. For example, the internal feeling of generosity or um, the internal feeling of gratitude, loving kindness, right? Tranquility. And then the kinds of pleasantness, pleasant feelings that we can, that are associated with seclusion from the sense desires that come up in practice. Like sometimes these pleasant feelings of concentration or just the simple delight I was referring to earlier when we're having, we're maintaining a bit of mindfulness and there's, we've dropped out of that constant craving something else, distraction of the mind. So those are some examples of unworldly pleasant feelings. And so we notice these, we notice the real fulfillment of these. We take that in, we drink in the knowledge of how that's fulfilling. They can become, now these can become unwholesome if we're attached even to those, right? Like we can't hold on to really, really anything. So if we move into attachment, even to these things, we can be in a state of suffering. So that's something else to notice. But we drink in the knowledge of what it feels like to have pleasantness in relation. That's not, that's not associated with just sense desire. Now, sometimes people ask like, what's an unworldly unpleasant feeling? So an unpleasant feeling that's actually associated with, you know, not chasing after, not greed, not hate, not delusion. There's a couple examples that I know of, and there may be, you know, more that other people can talk about, but they're also really interesting to explore and practice. And um, this, you can also I kind of have a whole Dharma talk or really significant part of a Dharma talk on these. So, but I'm just going to only be able to briefly describe these two, qual two qualities of the mind that can arise um, in relationship to our conduct, which are in Pali called Hiri and Otapa. So hiri is that cringing you feel when you maybe break a precept or you do something that's a little harming, like you said something that was false or, you know, you took something that actually wasn't maybe freely given. There's that cringing inside. And that's actually, you know, uh, an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. Now, again, if we get attached to it, we build a self out of it, a guilty being, then we're in the, then we're in the plane of unwholesomeness. But that uh, actual just cringing is, is onward leading for us. It points us in the direction of, of non-harming again. And so it can be really, um, in a way, fulfilling to notice it. Because um, of these two things, here you know Otapa, and I'll describe Otapa in a second, the Buddha called them the guardians of the world. So they're the guardians of us, really, in the world. They guard us from the sense of remorse and, and unhappiness we can have when we engage in harming behavior. So um, otapa is, is sometimes translated moral dread. It's, it's that fear of doing wrong, of wrongdoing. It's like when you're almost about to lie, 
and you and you're afraid of you have some fear of like what will arise for the harm that will arise um, or any other kind of other harming behavior so those are some examples of how to explore worldliness and unworldliness in relationship to Vedana in our practice. So one of the beauties of practicing with Vedana is that it can lead to another unworldly, possibly pleasant experience. Maybe not. I'm not sure, but it can lead to equanimity. Can lead to this balance of mind with the shifting and changing experience that I've been describing. It's really a non-reactivity, a sense of equipoise and equilibrium in response to, um, in response to the the Vedana, it's, it's not getting pushed around so much by them. It's not getting, it's not just rea- reacting habitually to grab after pleasant or push away unpleasant or ignore, not pay attention to the neutral. And it has this, um, equanimity also has this, gives us a space then to react out of wisdom and compassion instead of just those habits. So equanimity is this powerful state of mind that we can cultivate over time for our practice that can really give us a grounding for a wiser and compassionate life. So this is really, you know, um, in a way practicing with Vedana is one of the um, most powerful ways or most kind of points most perhaps most directly towards how we can cultivate equanimity. And I just want to pause here for a moment and talk about equanimity in the way that um, it can have a tremendous amount of uh, consequence socially if we cultivate this. I mean, when we think about it, some of the most effective leaders who have uh, cult, you know, have who have generated more compassionate, wise behavior on a societal level for us and in many areas of the world have um, extraordinary paramis cultivation of equanimity. One of the uh, favorite quotes I like to read when I talk about equanimity is from the Reverend Howard Thurman, who um, he was a civil rights leader and he was very active especially actually in the san francisco bay area and he said this about how one can kept keep be kept under subjection and its relationship to actually the non-cultivation of equanimity he said if a man knows precisely what he can do to you or what epithet he can hurl against you in order to make you lose your temper your equilibrium then he can always keep you under subjection. So if we have this ability to keep our equilibrium, then we can start to, it can be a tool for us to free ourselves from subjection in terms of all kinds of even messages that are coming to us from society, but also really acting in the world. 
And I love this. I found this. We can also actually cultivate non-reactivity even to our reactivity. So not to get caught in like, uh, we have to notice the, the pleasant, the unpleasant right in that moment. But you know, our, our reactivity is unpleasant. So if we're caught in a state of anger or contraction, we can also just, we can cultivate the ability to know that and not just act on it. And that can be incredibly powerful too. And um, I like how this quote uh, by Nelson Mandela really pointed to the way can, this can free us. So this was, uh, Bill Clinton rec recited this uh, interaction he had with Nelson Mandela. Um, and he was asking him about when he was leaving prison. He was in prison for 25 years in apartheid South Africa. And Clinton said to Mandela, tell me the truth when you were walking down the road that last time, didn't you hate them? And Mandela answered, I did. I am old enough to tell the truth. I felt hatred and fear, but I said to myself, if you hate them, when you get in that car, you will still be their prisoner. I wanted to be free, and so I let go. So it's that letting go, that letting go of the chain of reactivity. We can let go later too, right? We'll have to just catch it there. The unpleasant, the pleasant, or the neither. And if we're, if, you know, we can't all be Mandela, but we can do our absolute, you know, we can do our best to practice with these habits that we have that keep us in suffering usually. So this is not a just, a, so when we sit, you know, we come to these retreats and we sit, we come, we sit, we walk, we notice our breath, we notice our the feeling of the hands touching, the sensing, we notice the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. We're not doing something that's just um, passively not going to impact us. And we're doing it for this non-harming. And this is specific ways in which that plays out in our experience. So when we're caught in the constant state of reactivity also um, with reactivity to Vedana and kind of cycles of craving, there's a way in which we also kind of miss the spaciousness and freedom that can exist when we're living aligned with the truth of impermanence. Um, we get caught into sort of cycles of contraction and, and lose the larger sense. There's a way in which not only do we, can we cultivate equanimity, but we can cultivate this sense of our, inter, of, of our interconnectedness um, and the spaciousness of our experience. And I was kind of um, thinking about this because Gil and Andrea and I were talking about um, I think it was earlier today, actually, that we were talking about the fact that part of the Grand Canyon, Gil mentioned, part of the Grand Canyon used to be in South America. <laughs> so with the movement of tectonic plates over time, um, yeah, with the movement of tectonic plates over time, we've got part of South America, what used to be South America in, in the Grand Canyon, 
And, you know, partly this is because the continents all, all that we know of now used to all be conglomerated into one continent called Pangaea. And this is a part of our history, our life, our universal joint history. And um, when we think about that, and then we think about what happens when we have a little moment of unpleasant Vedana and our reaction to it, and what can flower out of that. And, uh, um, there's a contrast there that can, can kind of wake us out of our spell. Um, so the Buddha saw this. Isn't so fascinating? Some of his uh, those things he said in sutras about the things, about uh, some of them seem to indicate like an advanced knowledge of the nature of matter and things like that. But there's this particular sutta he talks about that you know there will be a time when all the oceans will be dry, and the biggest you know he describes a huge mountain that will just not be there anymore. Um, and he described the body as like sea foam. So he had this sense of its, you know, now physics, you know, physics, we know that there's just so much space here. And it's just fascinating that he could see all of that. And so our conversation this morning and this fact that I was going to be talking about Vedana had got me thinking about that contrast between the way we can get so contracted by a reaction to Vedana that gets us into a cycle of suffering, like a, just a judging thought, you know, like a judging thought and believing it. So much uh, unpleasant Vedana there, um, and then a cycle of becoming, um, a contraction in an aversive state. But in fact, our experience, uh, when, we, when we, we can take a spacious look out of our experience, we can break sometimes that spell of contraction. So then I was reminded of, um, Joseph Goldstein sometimes reads this, it's called The Pale Blue Dot, and um, our conversation about the Grand Canyon reminded me of it. And this refers to Carl Sagan. Um, Carl Sagan was involved in the Voyager 1 uh, space exploration, was an exploration uh, um, uh, that happened in the 90s, it ended in the 90s. Was go this this uh, Voyager one was going out to take pictures of Saturn, I believe, and then they they were ending their mission. But Carl Sagan convinced uh, NASA, I guess, to turn the voyage turn Voyager around and take a picture of the Earth from as far farther away than it's ever been, six billion kilometers. Um, and there was a controversy about whether to do that, but he convinced them to do it. And when they took this picture. Um, it was just, Earth was this tiny, 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 tiny little blue diffuse dot, like the tiniest little piece of dust you can't even see on the Buddha's toe there. That was the Earth. And so this is what he said about it. We succeeded in taking that picture, and if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being you who ever lived, lived out their lives the aggregate of all our joys and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. 
The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. So our little moments of Vedana are kind of like that just delusion about pale little little dots. Um, one of the teacher that I know uh, talks about a yogi who wrote a note to her on retreat that said, well, I think this is all it said, peeling my orange, I fought a war. <laughs> Um, so this is to just uh, kind of highlight that we can, uh, maybe bring some spaciousness to, to the, even to this close attention practice that we're doing and have some, um, have a sense of, uh, breadth to it and spaciousness around it and maybe a little humor. I think I'll actually end there. I have another little thing, but I'll leave you. Um, we can just take a few moments to let the words dissolve in the air. <laughs> <laughs>